This morning's scripture is 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Please pray with me. Lord, you are the vine and we are the branches, and you have sent us your Holy Spirit so that we may bear fruit for your kingdom. May we learn to share the fruit of kindness with others, as David did for the sake of his friend Jonathan. Please bless Pastor Jim as he opens your word to us this morning. Amen. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king said to Ziba, Saul's servant, he said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth, ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Meshibabeth's servants. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now, he was lame in both feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
In our preaching series this fall, uh, we are investigating what the New Testament calls the fruit of the Spirit. And these are the virtues and character traits that are meant to mark the life of a Christian. The Apostle Paul offers us this list in his letter to the Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Since we live by the Spirit, he says, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And as we've seen throughout this series, that the fruit of the Spirit is much more than a change in behavior. It goes to the heart of what we value, of what we love and desire. The fruit of the Spirit is about what it looks like to be renewed in the image of God. C.S. Lewis once said, The Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. The fruit of the Spirit is an expression of the love of God in the Christian life. If you believe that you are deeply loved by God, this belief will begin to change you from the inside out as you repent of those things that you've trusted in more than God's love and learn to trust and follow him and love others as you have been loved. Remember, uh, we've said that there is really only one fruit of the Spirit, but it takes many different forms. In other words, we don't get to pick and choose which part of the fruit of the Spirit that we're going to specialize in. You don't get a PhD in patience and know nothing about love. You don't develop joy without also learning to be a person of peace. There is only one fruit of the Spirit, but like light refracted through a prism, it contains many different colors. The author, Jerry Bridges, describes the fruit of the Spirit as like a single garment woven from threads of varying colors and shades. From a distance, the garment appears to be a single color, but closer examination reveals that it takes a combination of different colored threads to produce the overall effect. These different colored threads are what we are considering in this series. So today, we pull out another thread, the thread of kindness. And to help us think about kindness, we're considering this story of David and Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 9. It has a lot to teach us about kindness as the fruit of the Spirit. But this is not the most well-known story uh, of the Bible, so let's, let's review it together. Mephibosheth, I have to say that name like 30 more times, so uh, pray for me. <laughs> Mephibosheth is the grandson of the first king of Israel, King Saul. And as you may remember, there was a long protracted battle between Saul and his soldier David for control of the nation. David was the young rising star with popular support and the blessing of God, while Saul was an increasingly isolated, mentally unstable tyrant. The story of the conflict between them is the story of the book of 1 Samuel. I encourage you to, to read it. It's full of political and, and social intrigue. But eventually, Saul and his son Jonathan, who was also David's best friend, are killed in battle. And it's after the death of King Saul that we first hear of Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 4. He's only five years old at this point. 
But he's the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul, and so he's an heir to the throne. And his grandfather and his father have just been killed. And so after the report of their deaths, his nurse picks him up to flee with him, but we're told that she drops him as they rush to escape, and this is how his feet were injured. Eventually, though, he ends up in a place called Lodabar. Lodabar is in the upper northeast of Palestine on the far side of the Jordan River. It's about as far away from the capital city of Jerusalem as you could get and still be in the region. But it was pretty much in the middle of nowhere, on the edge of the Arabian desert. In fact, Lodabar literally means no word, no communication, no pasture. In other words, Mephibosheth is brought to Nowheresville, which was probably the safest place uh, for this heir to the throne to be after David takes power. But he's not just nowhere, he's also a no one, he's a nobody. He's dethroned, his family's power has been lost, there were other sons of Saul, and they continued to battle against David. But when we come to 2 Samuel 9, our, our chapter today, they've all been wiped out. This is why David can say, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? It's an open question whether there are any descendants of Saul left alive. But Mephibosheth's status as an outcast is not limited to his political position. With the injury to his feet, he's also grown up disabled in a culture that valued military might and valor. He is a nobody and even worse. In front of David, he calls himself a dead dog, which was like the, the worst thing possible in Hebrew culture. Dogs were ritually unclean, Dead things were unclean, and so a dead dog was the worst. You know, a doubly unclean. Nothing that you would ever want to go near or, or even touch. So Mephibosheth has grown up in Lodabar. He's in exile, but he's made a life there. He has a son, Micah. Things probably at this point felt somewhat stable to him. But one day... David's soldiers show up to bring him back to Jerusalem. Now, we know why they are there, but imagine this scene from Mephibosheth's point of view. He's the last remaining survivor of the previous regime. It is not looking good for him. But we, as the reader, know that in verse 1, David asked if there was anyone still left of the house of Saul, not to execute, but so that he might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. So what does David's kindness look like here? We find a summary in verse 7. David says to Mephibosheth, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. David gives Mephibosheth three reasons why he should not be afraid. These are three aspects of the kindness that he shows. 
First, he says that he will show Mephibosheth kindness for the sake of his father, Jonathan. The word that's translated here, kindness, is a very important one in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, it's the word chesed, translated many different ways uh, throughout the Bible because it's so rich. It's, it's translated as steadfast love, devotion, faithfulness, favor, kindness, love, loyalty, mercy, all of that is chesed. Uh, the Old Testament scholar John Golden Gay has said that there are two main dimensions of this concept of chesed in the Bible. On the one hand, chesed is an extraordinary generosity or graciousness that is shown to a stranger, someone with whom there is no obligation of relationship. In this case, it's translated as grace or unmerited favor. On the other hand, Hesed is an extraordinary loyalty or commitment shown to someone with whom you do have a relationship, with whom you are in covenant. In this case, it gets translated as faithfulness. But what we see in 1 Samuel 9, in David's kindness to Mephibosheth, is even more striking because here we have a combination of these two different senses. David shows an extraordinary generosity to a stranger, Mephibosheth, for the sake of another person, Jonathan, to whom he pledged his devotion as a friend in, in 1 Samuel 20. So David's promise of kindness means that Mephibosheth has the king's favor in a way that he never could have expected. He is no longer an enemy. Truly, he doesn't have to be afraid or doubt David's plans for him. And this becomes even more clear uh, as David goes on, because he says next, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. He returns Mephibosheth's inheritance. In the ancient world, land inheritance meant much more to people than it does to most of us today. The return of his ancestral homeland meant that Mephibosheth didn't have to live out in the desert any longer. But it also means much more than this. It means that he and his son had a future among the people of Israel. Their whole family identity was reestablished. Their place among the tribes of Israel was restored. It also meant the restoration of Mephibosheth's wealth and, and independence because he would have land, he would not simply be a lackey for David and totally dependent on the king. He will have resources of his own, including, we learn in, in verse 10, an estate manager, uh, this man Ziba, with 15 sons and 20 servants to work the land. So, we've seen one that David promises this kindness to Mephibosheth, this chesed kindness, taking away his fear. And two, David returns his inheritance, restoring his identity. Finally, David extends personal fellowship to Mephibosheth. He says at the end of verse 7, and you shall eat at my table always. He welcomes Mephibosheth to eat at his table and, and take up the same status as one of David's own sons. 
Notice uh, verse 11. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. So what can we conclude about David's kindness? It incredibly transformed the life of Mephibosheth. Where David could have been self-protective, he's extraordinarily self-giving. Where he could have been stingy, he's unusually generous. Where he could have settled for a monetary transaction, uh, he is personally invested in the relationship. One reason why I wanted us to look at this Old Testament story in this series on the fruit of the Spirit is that part of the role of the Scriptures is to give us models for these virtues. As we read these narratives, we're given examples of the moral life, both good and bad. We can imagine ourselves in these stories. We can ask, you know, what would I have done in that situation? Or, or how does this help me see my own life differently? Or how does God work in the lives of people? All of this is important. But the challenge of kindness, at least the kind of kindness that we're, we're seeing here today, goes beyond simply having a good example to follow. Real kindness means making a sacrifice for others with no benefit to ourselves. It's not just about how we act on the outside, but about our motivations and, and attitude. In the words of Jerry Bridges, kindness is a sincere desire for the happiness of others, a genuine interest in the well-being of those around you. Or as another author, Christopher Wright, says, Kindness goes beyond duty. It means doing something you don't have to do, but choose to do. You do what is kind for its own sake and for the sake of the other person. One person who has uh, thought very deeply about how people develop kindness uh, is a psychologist from the University of Washington named John Gottman. Uh, he and his wife, Julie, have spent the last four decades studying what makes human relationships work? They developed a lab at the University of Washington that they call the Love Lab. Uh, it's designed like a beautiful bed and breakfast where couples come to be observed. Uh, they mostly just ask couples to talk together and they, they listen carefully to the words they use. And then they follow up six years later to see if they're still together. From the data they've gathered, they've been able to arrive at some remarkable results. And one of their main conclusions is that kindness is absolutely central to a successful relationship. There will be negative interactions in any long-term relationship, moments of impatience or anger, but what matters most is the positive contributions that each person makes to the relationship. There are two ways that you can think about kindness, they say. You can think about it as a fixed trait Either you have it or you don't, or you can think about it as a muscle. The Gottmans say that in a thriving relationship, the muscle of kindness is being regularly exercised in small and large ways. So the question to ask ourselves is, are we exercising our kindness muscle? And in what ways? How are we practicing kindness in our daily interactions. This is a challenge that we face today, not just personally, but, but socially. 
there's really no doubt that we, we all believe in the importance of kindness. As I drive around Madison, I see a lot of yard signs and bumper stickers that simply say, be kind. But at the same time, we seem to be falling so short of this command. Our public discourse is harsh and cruel. And in our private relationships, we can so often settle for a superficial niceness rather than anything like the deep chesed kindness of the Bible. And unfortunately, this is as often true in the church broadly as, as anywhere else. But if Christians believe that kindness is the fruit of the Spirit, then if we sense it lacking, that should be a cause for deep self-reflection and repentance. As the pastor Scott Saul says, when the grace of Jesus sinks in, we will be the least offensive and least offended people in the world. So where do we go? Not just to hear the command to be nice, to be kind, or to find a great example of kindness like in our scripture text today, but to grow in the character of kindness as the fruit of the Spirit. This brings us to our, our final point today. In verse 3 of our text, David says that he wants to show Mephibosheth the kindness of God. David's actions are meant to display not just his character, but the character of God. This is quite a claim. And in, in the story of David's life, it's clear that this is the high point for him. From this point on, in the book of 2 Samuel, the focus shifts to David's failures, his abuses, and his pride. After chapter 9, the reader quickly learns that David is deeply flawed. In fact, I believe that the narrative is designed to make just this point, to lead us to conclude that the world needs a greater David, one who is always faithful and kind. In other words, the story of David is meant to point us beyond David to the Messiah, to Jesus. What David does for Mephibosheth, the New Testament declares that God does for anyone who comes out of hiding to trust him. Though not all of us are physically disabled, we all are spiritually disabled and deformed, not by a fall, but by the fall. Most of us have not been a war refugee or an exile, but so often we live in fear and hide ourselves in deserted places. The good news of the gospel is that God comes to us just as we are, but he does not leave us as we are. In Christ, he seeks us out and gives us an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. He invites us to sit at his table as his sons and daughters in full fellowship and security belonging to the family of God. He assures us of his kindness because we can see it in the Savior who is willing to take our guilt, sin, suffering, and death upon himself on the cross. When you experience the love of God as his undeserved kindness towards you, 
It changes you from the inside. You begin to look at other people differently. Rather than seeing them as competitors or threats, you start to see them as needy sinners made in the image of God, just like you, who also need a word of kindness and grace. Let me end with this today. In his book, uh, The Second Mountain, the New York Times columnist David Brooks tells a story uh, that illustrates uh, something of the power of kindness. Uh, kindness always ripples out in ways that we can, we can never fully comprehend. Uh, and Brooks writes about a project in Ontario called Roots of Empathy, which brings babies into schools in order to foster connection with needy kids. And Brooks uh, writes about this. Once a month, a parent and an infant visit a classroom. They sit on a green blanket, and the class gathers around them to watch and, and talk about what the infant is doing. They observe the infant try to crawl to something or reach for a toy. They're learning to put themselves in the mind of a baby, learning emotional literacy and, and learning how deep attachment works. In one class, there was an eighth-grade boy named Darren who had witnessed his mother's murder when he was four and had been bounced around the foster care system ever since. He was bigger than everybody else in class since he was two grades behind. And one day, much to everyone's surprise, Darren asked to hold the baby. He looked scary, and the, and the mother was nervous, but she let him. And Darren was great with the baby. He went over to a quiet corner and, and rocked the infant while the baby snuggled into his chest. David returned the baby to his mother and asked innocently, if nobody has ever loved you, do you think you could still be a good father? Do you see the power of, of kindness in this story? There's the kindness of the mother, of course, who, who comes into the school to, to make this connection. But then, as Darren shows kindness to the baby, it begins to change him. It opens up his heart and makes him vulnerable to others. Brooks describes it as a bloom of empathy and connection, a moment when community begins to heal a wound and create a possibility. Friends, your simple acts of kindness, at home, at work, on the street, driving your car, those acts of kindness have the same potential and power. Not just because we should be kind, but because kindness participates in a reality that is higher and deeper than we could ever imagine. The reality of God's love at work in this world. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. He has been kind to you so that you might be kind to others. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful for your kindness toward us, and we pray that you would help us to see that kindness, to believe that it is true, and to respond by showing kindness ourselves in ways that are sacrificial and generous and personal. Open our hearts to your love, and open our hearts to one another. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.